world, but essentially will control all of the diamonds coming out of South Africa throughout the 20th century. And they had a problem because as they entered the 20th century, demand for diamonds was going by the wayside. People were interested in other things. Uh, it didn't signify what it signifies today in terms of courtship and romance. And people were simply were not buying diamonds. They preferred other leisure goods. And of course, people were suffering through the 1920s and the Great Depression. And so it came to 1938. And De Beers knew that they were not making the money that they had hoped to be making. And so Harry Oppenheimer, the son of the founder of De Beers, flew to New York City to meet with a lead advertising agency at the time. And he said, this is our commission to you. If you can change the public perception of diamonds, then you will be our exclusive advertiser. We will do all of our business through you. So the agency at that time said, well... We are willing to take this on. And they began to consider how they might change public perception of diamonds. They knew that if, uh, since 90% of young men, uh, or 90% of diamonds were purchased by young men who were getting engaged, they said, we have to persuade young men that a diamond is an essential token of love. That it has to be a symbol of something significant. And the larger the diamond, the bigger a statement that is made. And the advertising agency said, we have to also persuade women that a diamond is an absolutely essential component of courtship. That their marriage doesn't happen without the reception of a diamond. Now, remember, up to this point, diamonds weren't a big deal, and many wedding rings did not have diamonds. And so the agency takes this on, and they begin to uh, do what advertising agencies do. They paid, uh, well, they didn't pay, but they gave diamonds to movie stars and asked them to flaunt them in public settings. They financially backed movies that had as part of the storyline the exchange of a diamond. And so it put it in front of the public face in terms of the screen as well. And they paid uh, fashion people who were on the radio at the time to speak about how the trend in fashion was going decidedly toward diamonds. And if you didn't have diamonds, you were going to be left out. Well, the agency was quite successful. Uh, between 1938 and 1944, uh, or between 1938 and 1941, excuse me, sales increased 55% of diamonds in the United States. The agency wrote that uh, they had developed a conception of a new form of advertising, which has been widely imitated ever since. There was no direct sale to be made. There was no brand name to be impressed on the public mind. There was simply an idea, the eternal emotional value surrounding the diamond. Shortly after that, that the ad agency would provide for De Beers its uh, slogan, which remains so to this day. Diamonds are forever. The notion that you would buy a diamond and it would be everlasting as a symbol, but not only a symbol of love, but also as an investment. Now, this is a really interesting part because from the perspective of De Beers, what they're trying to do is still control supply and demand. What they don't want to happen is for people to buy diamonds and then to resell them because it would flood the market with additional diamonds and prevent their ability to control the price. And so they developed this notion that a diamond could be bought as an investment, held within a family, passed down amongst generations. Brilliant. What does it do? It keeps all the diamonds off the market. So that all the supply is being controlled 
by De Beers. In 1947, the ad agency engaged socialites and did an ad campaign of pictures of these socialites wearing uh, big and impressive diamonds. And they wrote in a memo that year, we spread the word of diamonds worn by stars of screen and stage, by wives and daughters of political leaders, by any woman who can make the grocer's wife and the mechanic's sweetheart say, I wish I had what she had. To show you the complexity or the length that they were willing to go, in the 1960s, diamonds would also be discovered in Siberia. This was very upsetting to De Beers because Russia would grossly changed the diamond market and so De Beers proceeded to buy most of the diamonds coming out of Siberia so that they could continue to control supply. But the difference was the diamonds in Siberia were very small and all of the emphasis of De Beers had been on you have to get a really big diamond to make a really big statement. So suddenly with all these little diamonds on hand in consultation with the ad agency in the 1960s we're not talking about carrots anymore. What becomes the thrust of advertising? The cut and clarity of the diamond. That's what matters. And so you would prefer a small diamond as long as the cut and clarity was good and buy up all the Siberian diamonds so that De Beers would continue to profit. Now step back from this story for just a moment and consider in the, in the 19th century, diamonds didn't mean anything. They weren't a uh, widely appreciated jewel. They weren't widely exchanged as an engagement ring. But by the mid-20th century, you don't know anybody getting married without exchanging a diamond ring. It becomes part of culture. It becomes an assumption that this is an important token of love that communicates something. And the great irony of all of this is that in reality, diamonds aren't worth very much. Right? Carbon crystals that have been assigned a certain value, but you know this if you've ever tried to resell a diamond. The idea that you can pass it down in a family and it will gain accrue value is really pretty silly. Right? I felt a little sick to my stomach when I read this article because I can remember working a fair bit of a year for Jennifer's engagement ring only to find out that I've been duped by De Beers and these ad agencies that have led me to believe a story that isn't true at all and to assign value to something that's, that isn't actually valuable. Sometimes we don't see that clearly. There are lots of things, our own hearts, stories in the world, ad agencies that compete to try to get us to see things a certain way. In reality, they don't help us to have clarity, they just blind us. Israel was blinded. And Amos comes on the scene and says, no, Israel, this is what it means to see clearly. This is what it means to wait on Yahweh in a good fashion. That's the question that is before us today. Do we see clearly? Or do we assign value to the wrong place? And so to evaluate that question, I, I want us to see what the people in this passage see. Let's consider their eyes or their sight. And so we're going to ask, what does God see? What does Amos see? What does the prophet see? And ultimately, what does Jesus see? So first of all, what does God see? Well, God comes on the scene, and God is executing two visions for Amos to explain what he's about to do to Israel. And both visions are very scary. If you look at verse 1, God says, uh, Behold, he was forming locusts when the later growth was just beginning to sprout, and behold, it was the later growth after the king's mowings. Now that may sound a bit confusing, 
But what Amos is saying is that there's a plague of locusts coming, and they're coming at the worst possible time. There were two harvests in ancient Israel at this time because there were two, two rains, essentially. And so if the locusts came early, it was okay because you had another harvest coming. Or if the locusts came late, it was okay because you already got the first harvest. But if the locusts came right in between, at the point of harvest on the first crop, and as the second crop is beginning to grow, that was the most devastating, and that's what Amos is saying is going to happen. This is his vision. The locusts will come at the worst time. There will be a famine, mass starvation, and death. It's the worst thing that could happen to an agricultural economy. The second vision is similar. It occurs in verse 7. I'm sorry, not in verse 7, in verse 4. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, the Lord God was calling for a judgment by fire, and it devoured the great deep and was eating up the land. Now, fire is almost not even an adequate word. It's difficult to translate the Hebrew. What Amos is describing is this massive heat. It's a heat that's so intense, it dries up the sea and devours the land so that there's nothing left. In other words, you have two visions of what God is going to do, and what God is going to do is utter destruction. Now, I think we wrestle with that to some degree when we read of God coming to destroy. You know, if Israel is his true son and he comes simply to destroy, is this some kind of cosmic child abuse? Why is God so bent on destruction and is he simply an angry, vengeful person? Well, if we take the story in the greater context, we know that God has pleaded with Israel for centuries to repent, to turn back to him and to make good decisions so that they would follow him. And he's waited and he's waited and he's waited and finally he has said in love, this, this must come to an end. You won't listen and so I have to drop the hammer so that the story will go in the right direction. Now God's discipline is always born out of his love. You know, I was marveling. I was reading a book for some other reason on marriage in the Old Testament or marriage in the Bible. And it emphasized that God, somewhat uniquely in the ancient Near East, describes himself as the husband of Israel. It's this incredibly intimate language. But even more than that, even more than this metaphor of marriage, what is even more unique is that God stresses, using this metaphor, his loving kindness. You know, what really stands out when you read the Old Testament is not God's judgment. It's that God, uniquely in the ancient world, describes him as a God who is characterized by loving kindness, who will go out of his way to demonstrate compassion and love and care and concern for his people. And even in the midst of discipline, this is the case. And you, you know this, you can imagine as a parent, if you had a child that was gifted and had a bright future, but then turned to drugs, right, became an addict of something, would you not leverage everything in your power to go after that child and to change that story? Would you not move heaven and earth to bring them back to a place of health and stability? No, the stakes are so much higher when God is Father and Israel is the true son, and this is the story of redemption for the entire world. The story has to be put on the right tracks. And so God must come in judgment and discipline to put it back on the right tracks. But as we see with God's eyes, right, what does God see? What does he reveal to us? He looks at Israel, he sees their sin, and he acts decisively, which communicates to us that God takes sin much more seriously than we do. How often this week, this month, have you engaged in sin and you know it's something that is not good for you? It's something that does not benefit those around you? And you excuse yourself. It's not that big a deal. 
Jesus died for this. After all, I'm forgiven. I don't have to take it that seriously. But then you come and you see God taking Israel's sin extremely seriously. If we're going to see rightly, if we're going to see as God sees, then you and I need to take our sin very seriously. And to repent, to run away from it, and to run toward God, lest you have to engage even more discipline to wake us up. Well, if that's what God sees, right? he sees sin, and he acts decisively against sin, what does Amos see? What does Amos show us in terms of seeing well or correctly? We've noted all along in Amos that Israel perceives herself to be very strong at this time period. Militarily, she's not contested. She's the strongest nation around. No one can really hold a candle to her in all of Palestine. So Israel perceives herself to be strong and uh, that there's no challenger. But as these visions come down, Amos pleads for Israel. But on what grounds does he plead for Israel? If you look at verse 2, O Lord God, please forgive. How can Jacob stand? Jacob referring to Israel. He is so small. And then again in verse 5, O Lord God, please cease. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. Israel has the notion that she's very strong and powerful. And Amos, the prophet who sees clearly, says, no, she's not strong and powerful at all, particularly before the hand of God. She is small and weak. And so if we're going to see ourselves clearly, where might you be overemphasizing your perceived strength? Where do you think of yourself as particularly gifted or strong? A place where you might say, you know, things can go wrong in these other aspects of my life. But if I always have this base of strength, I can always return here, things will be okay. And it could be anything. It could be because you, you're helpful to people or because you tend to control situations or because you, you're uniquely gifted. Whatever is that safe home base for you in which you affirm your own goodness and your own strength. Is it really a source of strength or is it an opportunity for you to rely on something other than God? What if Israel confessed at this time, you know, Amos, you're right. We're not nearly as strong as we think we are. And so we repent. We are weak. We can't stand against this judgment. We want to run to God rather than away from Him, which is relying on our strength is, is running away from Him. Many, many, many years ago, I was in, uh, I was in decent shape. I loved athletics. I ran two seasons uh, in my senior year, and I got permission to be released during the school day to go and train for canoeing and kayaking. So I spent a, a, kind of a ridiculous amount of time uh, just engaging athletics and training. Well, it was maybe five years ago that I decided, as I decide regularly, I'm going to finally get in shape, which really hasn't happened since that my senior year. And so I go to the gym and I say, well, I'm just I'm going to whip my body back in shape. And I, I sit down and start lifting weights and I say, I'm, I can lift like I used to lift. Right. And those of you, you laugh and you shake your heads, you know, because as I felt my shoulder pop and my labrum tear, off of my bicep, I knew that I was not as strong as I used to be, and that this was a great act of foolishness. It's an act of foolishness, right, generated by what? By I perceive myself to be strong in a certain way. I'm not going to negotiate that strength. I can do whatever I want to do. How silly. And what an enormous price to be paid. 
for the destruction that occurred, for the attempts to fix that will happen. Right? Foolishness. So where, where do you perceive yourself to be strong? And yet you, reckon, you realize that it is not a safety net, that it doesn't grant you the security or the refuge that you think it does. And instead you would be far better admitting a degree of weakness in that very area and running to God and saying, I surrender. I'm not strong and I can't protect myself. I can't protect my family. I can't keep myself even from sin or loving the wrong thing too much. Would you please direct my steps? If we see clearly, if we see better than we do, with Amos's eyes, we will see ourselves not as strong but as weak and in need of the strength of our Savior on our behalf. Well, Amos shows us how to see in another way, and he does this because he stands in the role of prophet. And as God reveals these visions, you have one of the most... This only occurs three or four times in the Old Testament. And it's a beautiful occurrence, because what does Amos argue? In verse 2, he says, O Lord God, please forgive. And in verse 5, he says, O Lord God, please cease. In other words, Amos pleads with God to relent, to exercise mercy on behalf of Israel, even though he spent the whole, the entirety of the book up to this point saying Israel is very bad and deserves judgment. At this point, he sees the fierceness of the judgment and he asks for God to relent. And God says, yes, this shall not be. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to relent. We see this at the golden calf when God is angry with Israel and about to destroy them and Moses says, no, please cease. And when God's people enter the promised land, they mess up again and God's about to hand them over to the Amorites and Joshua says, no, please desist. Please show mercy to your people. These occasions in which the prophet stands in the breach between the people and God and asks God to be merciful even when God has disclosed that he's going to execute judgment. Now, this is the place where theologians love to debate and argue whether or not God changes his mind. And they spend so much time debating and arguing whether or not God really changes his mind that I think they very often fail to actually be willing to heed the example and to stand in the breach on behalf of the wicked. This is Amos saying, yes, these people deserve judgment. I've been talking about their wickedness this entire time, but I'm going to stand on their behalf and ask for mercy. It's the role of the prophet, and it's what we're called to. Jesus prays for his enemies. He forgives those who persecute him, and we'll consider that a bit more in just a moment. But the question for us, even as we see with Amos' eyes, or the prophet's eyes, do you stand in the breach on behalf of the wicked? Do you pray for those who are your enemy and for those who are wicked? Do you, do you pray for the pimps in Kaligat. You pray for the stone quarry masters who enslaved the women there. Do you pray for your neighbor who is the most selfish person in the history of the world and drives you crazy? Do you pray for the bully who sends your kid home crying? What does it say about our hearts if we're not actually engaged in that? If we say out of one side of our mouth, yes, I'm so glad to be a Christian, Jesus showed me love and compassion and forgiveness when I was his enemy. And then we turn around and we don't exercise any compassion or kindness towards those who are our enemy. How well do we actually know Jesus? 
Or do we really perceive ourselves to be God's enemy at all? What is it this week to go forth, right? And even in your own heart and in your own time, but also as a family, pray for those who are your enemy. Pray for those in the world who would seek our destruction. Pray that the Spirit might go forth and tongues confess that Jesus is Lord. This is what it is to participate in the extension of God's kingdom and to learn through the prophet's eyes. And of course, those prophet's eyes point to Jesus' eyes. No, miraculously, Israel does receive mercy in this place. Amos pleads for Israel, and God says to both visions, it shall not be. I'm not going to do it. But when we go forward to the prophet who stands in the breach on behalf of us all, he also prays for mercy. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. And God says no. He does not receive mercy. He receives God's judgment and his wrath. How clearly do you see? How well are you waiting for the coming of Jesus? If we see with God's eyes in this passage, do you take sin seriously? If we see with Amos' eyes, do you recognize that you are small and weak, and any strength that is worth speaking of comes not from your hand, but from God's? If we see with the prophet's eyes, we stand in the breach on behalf of our enemy and pray for those who would persecute us or cause us trouble. And if we see with Jesus' eyes, then we ask, what really is valuable? We have already examined our propensity to assign value to diamonds where it should not be assigned. What truly is valuable? Jesus did not receive mercy and shed his blood for what? What did he ascribe the most value to? To you. That you might be bought and paid for with a dear price. And it's an understanding the degree to which God values us in the death and resurrection of Jesus that we come to value things rightly and see things clearly. So as you come to the table this morning, know that you are dearly loved. You have been paid for with an extreme price. But out of that value, and you don't need to ascribe value to the false things of this world, but instead can participate in Amos ministry. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your great sacrifice and that you are not only the prophet but the priest and the king who saw abundantly clearly and even though you knew that you were headed to sacrifice yourself and even though you would have had that cup of God's wrath pass from you you were faithful and obedient to the end we thank you that you have stood in the breach in a way that we could never hope to and as a result we are redeemed so would you help us to see more clearly than we did when we came in here today. To take our sins seriously. To not be boastful of our own strength, but to fall under your hands. To stand in the breach on behalf of those who are our enemies. And to continue to live out of the value that you have placed upon us, rather than the value that we would ascribe to ourselves. We pray that you would wake us up, that you would clear our eyes,
and that you would increase our vision as we come to be fed with you and by you this morning. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.